Good morning, everyone. Would you uh, please stand as we have our reading from Psalm 31? You'll find that in the Pew Bible on page 567. This morning we'll look at verses 1 through 12. I'll begin with the uh, first verse, congregation, the even verses. We'll conclude together on the last. So 1 through 12, Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net, which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. And you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in the Lord's place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul, and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity, and my body has wasted away. Because of all my adversities, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I am, I am forgotten, forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. Okay, please be seated. Well, as you can see what we just read, the psalm begins with David talking about his relationship with God. And in that first verse, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. His positionally, he was in with the Lord. He was in a spot where he was secure of his salvation. As we read this portion of the psalm, it almost sounds as though it's the walk that we have when we first come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. As we, as we can say in the first several verses, how strong we are in the Lord, how great our faith is. He has made me strong. I read the scriptures. I'm coming to know the Lord. I am secure in that position. Those who wait around, they try to entrap me. There's always something coming against me, but I have my strength in the Lord. I find my refuge and where I can take safety and that he would protect me. And that's pretty much how David sounds in the beginning of this psalm. And it does sound like he is very strong in his faith. And as he comes along through this psalm, though, there seems to be a change in his tone. There seems to be a a difference between the fellow who started this psalm and as he continues. He requests that, that as the troubles and afflictions come about him, that God still keeps him strong. But in kind of in verse 9 you start seeing the change be gracious to me O lord for i am in distress now all of a sudden these hard times are coming against him something is coming about in his life where he is sort of on that rock of 
what do I do? Where do I stand? Am I really that secure in the Lord? My life, uh, my eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. It almost sounds as though it's a time at which he had lost his son, uh, who was born out of the, the adultery that he had with Bathsheba, and now he's, he has lost him. That affliction that came upon him had become a reproach. Others had seen him for who he really was outside of the Lord. These, these neighbors who want to stay away from him, they want, have found that he is like a dead man to them. They're out of mind, like a broken vessel. It is pretty much like a walk that most people have. We start out strong in the Lord and very confident in our faith and being, knowing the Lord. But as you go through your life, these trials and these tribulations and these afflictions that come about sometimes can weaken our faith. Sometimes it's like, are you really there, Lord? Are you really holding me as secure as I had thought you were originally? But as you read the scriptures, as you see the word of God unfold before you, there is a confidence in the way that God reveals himself. There is a confidence that he gives to us that our faith is not in vain, that he is there, that he does build that net around us. He protects us. He protects those who are his. Enter into his kingdom and you don't leave. It's an eternal kingdom. So as we had heard through many of the prayers that people had given forth earlier, requests for prayer for illnesses or sorrows or what have you, the things of life, we can rest assured that we always stand in, in God's righteousness that we have his rock to be our strength, and positionally, we are always secure in his arms. So just a couple of words on that. Thank you. I have to say, I love the, I love the Psalms. I really do. I, I think, uh, as Pastor Steve said, that the Psalms really do get to the heart, and they allow us to see the heart of God and they allow us to examine our own heart. I remember a couple of years ago preaching through the Psalms on Father's Day. And I said that the Psalms really do get to the heart of the Father's wisdom. And they allow us to really examine ourselves and say, you know, where am I at in this walk? How can I find my identity, my humanity in the details of the book of Psalms? So, uh, Pastor Steve, I appreciate that. And I, I definitely, uh, I can agree with that process. You know, I, I think uh, as I, when I first became a Christian, I remember hearing somebody say to me, I was, you know, pretty uh, radical Christian early on when I had my conversion. And I remember somebody telling me, don't worry, that passion, as you go through your faith, that passion will die out. And I remember thinking, why? Why would a Christian want my passion to die out? And as I've gone through, I've walked the road, you know, uh, ran this race. I understand what that man was pointing to. I understand the wilderness journey of life. I understand the ups and the downs. And, you know, I I try not to uh, ignore that. I think as Christians, we we say, well, we're seated in heavenly places, so we find ourselves at this sort of conundrum. Do I ignore the problems in life and just praise God despite them? Can I, be, can I find my humanity and identity in the struggle? Can I, you know, is that okay? And I think when we go to the book of Psalms, we see that. We, we can identify with you know, the cries of David and a man after God's own heart. So, uh, again, beautiful stuff. I want to bring us into, uh, my message this morning is called Soaked. 
And uh, again, we're saturated, and now the goal is to leave here soaked. Uh, as I've been studying and sharing the types and the antitypes of the Israelites, their exodus from Egypt, and ultimately the exodus of the first century saints from the law of sin and death, I have gained much more perspective and appreciation for what the Apostle Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Namely, that the details of the exodus, the Apostle Paul says that those details were recorded as an example upon, for us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. And also, some translations would say the goal of the ages has come, which I think is important as well. Um, so we know when we look back to that first century, we see that God revealed the mystery. He revealed everything that was being hoped for through Israel. How will we find that righteousness that David longed for? Jesus. How will we find freedom outside of a law that convicts us of sin and death? Again, that first century audience. Um, Jesus. That's the gospel. So, again, I find so much when I read 1 Corinthians 10 and what the Apostle Paul was saying. Um, there's just so much there. If you spend time reading the Jewish parshats or what are referred to as uh, rabbinical teachings, you will see that the rabbis, they spend a lot of time meticulously looking at that Exodus period there, uh, how the Israelites were redeemed from Egypt, how they were brought through the wilderness, and the very human aspects of that wilderness journey, right? The uh, doubting of the Israelites, the power of God being made manifest, and yet them still being stubborn enough to doubt God when he's revealed himself again and again and again. A very human thing. Something we could probably all identify with. Um, again, the rabbis spend a lot of time there. And they use that whole picture all, all the way up till the Israelites enter into the land of e um, the promised land. And even that, there's examples for us to consider. Again, there was surely examples for the first century church to whom Corinthians was written. However, today, being the people that are not living in that last day moment, we could also be a people that look to the scriptures and say, well, what did Israel do when they got into the land, right? There was still work to do. Prayerfully, you know that story. And you know that once Israel got into the promised land, it wasn't, up. Oh, here we are in heaven, celebrate. It was, no, here we are. We have now been given the promise of God. We've been given the, the hope, a fulfilled hope. But yet now we have work to do. And again, I hope all of us can identify with that, that picture of scripture that, you know, we, we, we're saved from something. Um, I would even go as far as to mark out a third exodus, our lives. So you have first exodus, for Israelites from Egypt. Second exodus, the first century saints from the law of sin and death. And then our lives, which is our exodus from whatever has kept us in bondage. Dare I say, leaning upon our own understanding, devising our own God, being our own God. Um, these are all things that we need to be moving away from. So again, I love this exodus picture. And I have no problem with spending the past two months focused in on that exodus picture because I believe... That's what Jesus would have done. That's what the apostles would have done. I'm convinced that doing so not only helps us better understand what was happening and what was being revealed in the first century, but also it provides application for our lives today. As we have gone through this, and I've challenged us to mark out those exoduses, um, again, bondage, the wilderness, the promised land, I believe that we've found good application for today. In our sermons for the last couple months, we've journeyed with Israel out of Egypt. We've experienced the plagues. We've crossed the Red Sea. We took note of the distinction that God made between his people and other people. We've identified with the grumbling of the Israelites. But prayerfully, we felt the conviction that we must mature past such attitudes. Again, we can identify with them, but hopefully you found yourself saying, I don't want to be a grumbling Israelite. 
I don't want to be a discontented person. I want to be a person that has godly contentment. So again, we don't want to spend all time identifying. It becomes frustrating that a lot of Christians find this, uh, this identity and saying, well, we're always going to be grumblers or we're always going to be sinners and we never get past that point. You know, as I was saying, or somebody this week, I believe it was Pastor Steve, that, you know, we have to find ourselves moving past that place of identifying as a sinner and actually identifying as righteous people that can move in righteousness and not giving ourselves an excuse. It seems that the Israelites, when they were wandering in the wilderness, they just kept grumbling. And unfortunately, as I look at Christianity today, I say sometimes the picture looks all too similar. And I would hope that we, as we read through these passages and we find conviction in that regard, that we would move past grumbling. We would move past everything that we see Israel did in that wilderness that kept them from experiencing their promise. We are those that are called to life and not death. And thus today in our reading, we will celebrate the defeat of the Amalekites at Rephidim. That's where we talked about last week, right? They held up the arms of Moses. You see uh, Hur and Aaron. They raise up the arms of Moses and Israel therefore defeats these Amalekites. Obviously, I used that message last week to talk about unity, the need for unity in the church, the need for believers to lift each other up, to hold each other's arms up in the work that we do. That should be a good application that we would get from Exodus chapter 17. So in Exodus chapter 18, where I'm going to bring us today, we have Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, coming out to celebrate with Moses at Rephidim. Again, now Jethro has heard all these things that God has done for Israel and for Moses. So he comes out and he says, let me go see my son-in-law to praise God, right? To proclaim to him the things that God has done. Something I said in my sermon last week. I said that God saves a people to save people. And I thought it was interesting that I said that. And then sure enough, as you move into Exodus 18, you have a guy far off, Jethro, coming to Moses, because now God did all this stuff to Moses and Israel. Jethro comes and says, Wow, I've heard all the good things that your God has done. And he exalts God. There's no other God besides him. No greater God than the God of the Israelites. To me, that seems to be the focal point of what God was doing through the Exodus. He was saturating them with his presence so that other people, right, the Egyptians, other nations around them, might see the goodness of God. As I look at this sort of picture of saturation, I want to kind of go off for a moment here. Um, I compare it to getting in a pool. Okay, so I'm going to equate our lives to getting in the pool. It's sad that I'm doing this on the first day of autumn, not the first day of summer. However, um, follow me. So uh, I don't imagine anybody's planning on getting in the pool in the next couple months. So um, you think about when you get into a pool. At least I'm going to think about myself. I'm going to identify. This is my identification here. Um, When I get into a pool, sometimes the water's cold, so you tiptoe in, right? You take your time, kind of tiptoe in. You wander around the shallow end to help your body get acclimated to the cold water. And then usually you feel comfortable enough to say, let me go underneath, right? That's what I do. I spend like two or three minutes in there, and then I'm like, all right, time to get the whole body drenched, right? Go underwater. And then when you do that, then I guess you're comfortable enough in the water where now you begin to spend time there. You might... I don't know. I, as I prepared this, I wondered, what do people do in the pool? Um, you know, uh, I guess you play games. Some people play basketball in the pool. Some people just kind of hang out, swim laps. Brian, I, I imagine you're a guy that might swim laps in the pool. So, uh, all right, so that's what we do, right? We get in the pool, and then you spend time there. And obviously, hopefully you're, you see where I'm going with this. Um, the spirit is used, is equated to water in Scripture. Things of God are equated to water in Scripture. Again, we are the people that have possession of the water of life. And we are supposed to, as per John 7, have that water of life flowing out from our innermost being. So 
I think of getting, getting in the pool. Now I'm saturated in the water. Perfectly, everybody around me is saturated in the water, soaked in the water as well. And that's what, how I picture this kingdom of God thing that we're doing here with the presence of God and the spirit being in our lives. We've tiptoed in. Perfectly, most of us are past that. We've tiptoed in the water. We've felt around. We now understand the presence of God. We understand the impact. We're convicted or soaked, however you want to, whatever word you prefer. Um, we're soaked or convicted by the very presence of God in our lives. Trials will come and go. But at this point, we've experienced the victory of God, and we are so soaked in his presence. That's how I see Israel at this point in Exodus 18. They've witnessed the plagues. They've seen God give them manna. They've been walked through the Red Sea. Again, so much stuff. God has literally soaked them in his presence and his promise. And he's gone before them, besides them, with them, the whole thing. So much so that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, hears about what God has done. If you'd like to turn with me to Exodus 18, I want to mark out some things in that passage today. Exodus chapter 18 is on page 75 of the Pew Bible. So going back to that point I made, God saves a people to save a people. God saved Israel from Egypt so that others would see his wonders. We've seen this as we went through that when he was bringing forth the plagues. How many times did God say, so that the Egyptians might see? He did it so that not only his people would know, but that the people around them would see. He gave his people a law so that his people would live by that law, and therefore the nations would be compelled to worship God. And as I mentioned last week in John 17, as well as in Ephesians 2.7, the goal of God's work was to affect some so that, that through that work, he might affect others. You see, that's what God does through the Exodus, and that's what God does in the first century. And prayerfully, that's what God's doing through you. He's affecting you in a way that he's affecting others. This seems to be the biblical pattern. The way that God works in and through our lives is so fluid and cannot truly be marked out. Again, you know, where is our influence? Who are you influencing in your life? Right now, if I was to really ask you to assess that. Who are you influencing in your life? It'd be hard to really qualify. You really don't know. It's sort of like wind and water. As water is so fluid, wind, you know, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 3, that you don't know where it goes. The one that is born of the Spirit is like the wind. You do not know where it goes. That should be our influence. We, we don't know how many people that are being influenced. When God was bringing Israel out of Egypt, you might say that his influence was like the wind. He didn't know who he was affecting. He was just bringing out his mighty works to the extent that everybody would be affected by his glories. That's the way that God works. Again, wind and water are phrases that speak of the Spirit's work in our lives. We see this in John 3, 5 and 8, and John 7, 37 and 39. And that's what I believe is happening right here in Exodus chapter 18, is that that wind and that water, the Spirit's influence is now being manifest through what God has done for Israel to the extent that other people are now being affected by it. If I may bring us over to Exodus 18, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that Israel, all that God that had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife, Zipporah, after he had sent her away, and her two sons, of whom... One was named Gershom, for Moses said, I had been a sojourner in the foreign land, and the other named Eliezer, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was 
my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was camped at the Mount of God. He sent word to Moses, I am your father-in-law Jethro, and I am coming to see you with your wife and her two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. It's a good evangelism verse right there. Uh, Moses told his father in all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that, he, that had befallen them on their journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. I know, now I know, that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. This should cause us to praise God right here. This is a beautiful picture of evangelism. God did a mighty wonder. That wonder caused this man to come to the people of God, therefore to ask them, tell me, what has God done for you? And then he tells them, right? He asked, actually, I thought it was interesting in that verse there. It says, Moses asked him of his welfare. One of the things I'll mark out here is I know a lot of Christians that tend to be in the habit of loving to share their testimony, but never taking a moment to say, hey, Ed, how you doing? Right? It's, it, you know, take that moment. In our evangelism, we need to be people. I, I know I've said this many times. People ask me, what's your evangelism strategy? And I tell them, be a good conversationalist or be a decent person. Um, you know, go out and actually ask people, how are you doing? And then let God do the work, the wonders, as he seems to be doing here Beautiful picture. Moses then tells him everything. And you see he's, he's honest with him. He doesn't only tell him the good stuff. He says, let me tell you about the wilderness journey. Let me tell you about the wandering and all the bad things that befell us as well. He's authentic. There's definitely something we can get from that in our how we go about teaching the nations what God has done and how he has influenced our lives. I love this because, again, this is a man that, this is a salvation story. This is the, I guess you might say, a biblical altar call. Right? The guy, he comes to him, he brings him there, and now they all eat together, they fellowship like we're going to do, and praise God for what he has done. This also reminds me of the call of Peter. I, found this, I thought this was interesting, and this is in your Saturate booklet, by the way. If you still have that booklet I gave out a couple weeks ago, um, we're actually done with the different points. But now if you were to flip that book over, right? so you remember it was Saturate, and it gave us a couple weeks lessons. If you flip it over, it's an equipping guide. So now this part is supposed to be for you, where you could go through and you could get equipped to be like Moses, to be how Moses is, how he received Jethro, and he evangelized to Jethro. This is supposed to help you do that. One of the things that I thought was interesting was the call of Peter. You remember when Jesus in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Jesus wanders over and he uh, sees these men fishing, and it looks like they've had a long day. Matter of fact, the text reveals they had a long day. And they, they didn't catch anything. It was just a, I'm sure we all know those days, right? You go to work, and it's just a rough day. So Jesus shows up on a rough day, and he tells them to drop their net. Now, you're tired. You know, I've already done this. We already did this work. He tells them, drop the net. And I thought it was interesting that Simon Peter says, if you say to drop the net, then okay, fine, we'll drop it. Well, he had already said it. You see, it was, he was repeating it to make sure everybody that was there was listening. If okay, if you say it, then I guess I'll drop the net. And he drops the net, and I'm sure you all know the beautiful story, right? He pulls it back up, and it's overflowing with fish. 
So Peter's testimony comes from God doing something that affected the people around Peter as well, right? Because then from that moment on, Peter begins to follow Jesus. I thought that was interesting because then another often mentioned passage that Christians use would be Peter getting out of the boat, right? Matthew chapter 14. And I always thought it was interesting that when Peter sees or Jesus says it is I, don't worry, don't be afraid of the ghost. Uh, Peter says, well, Lord, if it is you, you will tell me to get out of the boat. And I've always understood that, that Peter knew that the Jesus he followed was a Jesus of challenge. You see, because why would he say that? If it's you, Lord, tell me to get out of the boat. That's setting yourself up for failure. You know, like, all right, you know, I'm going to expect something of you now. However, yesterday as I examined this, I thought there's actually a similarity between the way that Peter was called and the way that Peter was challenged to get out of the boat. In his calling, God not only reaches Peter, but he also does something to exemplify his glory to the people around Peter. Remember, Peter wasn't fishing by himself. So when he said, drop the net... Peter, yes, repented and became a follower of Jesus. And I imagine others that were with him fishing did as well. Sure enough, when Peter's in the boat in Matthew 14, he's not by himself. So I believe now, not only does God want to challenge us to get out of the boat, of course, but also everything that God does, he does it to affect those that are around you. So it's interesting when you go through your life and you examine your life and you say, what has God done and who is he influencing through these things? I believe Peter knew that when God does a work, when I, if that's Jesus... He's going to do something that's going to challenge everybody in this boat right now. And I'll guarantee when they seen Peter get out of the boat and begin to walk on water, it challenged everybody in that boat. It might have brought them to a point where somebody there was like Jethro and would have come to Moses and said, tell me about the things that God has done. How, how did you walk on water for that, what was it, maybe 30 seconds, right? Maybe not even, uh, two seconds. So, uh, you know, and why? What happened? Why did you drown? I know that's what I would have questions about. So my point is, is that when God does Mighty works, just like we see here with the Exodus, just like we see with the call of Peter, just like we see with the getting out of the boat, perfectly, you can say in your own life, he does things to affect people around us as well. It's not just about us. It's not just about me. Thank God. So, again, God always does these things to, uh, to show his astonish, you know, astonishing and amazing glory to the people around him. That's what God did in and through Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, you see, the Midianites um, were descendants from Midian. This is, remember, Jethro's from Midian. Um, the Midianites are descendants of Midian, who, were, who was a son of Abraham through his wife Keturah. This could be seen in Genesis chapter 25. The Midianites, through their apparent religious political connection with the Moabites, are thought to have worshipped a multitude of gods. So again, Jethro's not coming as a believer in the God of Israel of a whole different religion. Actually, they worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth. An Egyptian temple at Hathor and Timnah continued to be used during the Midianite occupation of that area. However, whether Hathor or some other deity was the object of devotion during this period is up for debate. So it would appear that the Midianites, like other cultures, turned away from the god of Abraham to false gods. Therefore, Jethro is now being evangelized, coming back and obviously saying, I believe in the true God, the one true God that made himself known to Abraham. I want to continue in our text here in Exodus 18. Starting at verse 11, we see here Jethro gives this great praise. Now I know the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. 
Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for the God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses and his father-in-law. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from the morning until evening. So what's happening here now is now praise is all done, right? Everybody, we've seen the mighty works of God. We've lifted up praise. We've developed the good foundation of worship. What's next? We're going to see, matter of fact, this text is going to reveal what happens next. So in your life, let's think first off corporately. Corporately, if we, as a church, we've set our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we've praised him, we've taken note that the way that God makes known the manifold wisdom of God is through the church, Ephesians 3.10. So now what? Now we would begin to do work, right? We would sit in the gate, so to speak, like Moses did. Moses, this whole moment of praise happens. Right? Jethro comes to him, they praise. Moses then says, okay, well now that we've gotten a good foundation of worship, it's time to get to work. Get in the gate. And we did a little talk in our Sunday school this morning about that gate. Right? You would go to the gate and that's where the chamber of commerce, I'm going to start using that now. Um, that's where the chamber of commerce sort of started to happen in that little city. So Moses begins to get to business. It's exactly what's happening. And again, individually, Prayerfully, you know this in your own life, right? When you've set up praise in your own life and you've marked out that there's only one Lord and there's none beside him, and it's, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The next thing to do is then to begin to live out maybe Second Peter chapter 1. Grow in the things that would make you effective and fruitful in your use of the knowledge of God. That's what Moses is doing here in Exodus chapter 18 verses 11 through 13. So begins the work of discernment, the work of judging. Moses took on quite the feat. In the Old Covenant, Moses was considered the spiritual one. I want to take note of that this morning. He was the spiritual one to whom all would go to receive the right judgment of what God was giving. It was a fading glory in that old covenant, but there was a spirit of glory nonetheless. Right? Moses had God's glory. He was the one who was set to judge all things. Today in the new covenant, through the Spirit's work with the apostles, and what the apostles teach us is that we are all spiritual. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, the spiritual man judges all things. And that's us, those to whom the Spirit has been given. So in a sense, we are Moses. And again, you've seen how I've been sort of patterning this, this Exodus thing here. Is I want us to look at, yes, what Moses did, but I also want us to ask, what does this have to do with the work that we should be doing in our lives? How do we saturate our world with the gospel, just as Moses saturated his world with the praise of God's glory? So Moses here... Well, first I want to mark out uh, what's going to happen is Jethro is going to say this. Jethro is going to come to Moses now and he's going to see that what Moses does is not good. It was good that he was trying to go about judging, right? But he went about doing it all by himself. And as Jethro tells him here, you will grow weary doing it all by yourself. And I would imagine we can say that to each other, that in this walk where we are spiritual and we can judge all things, as 1 Corinthians 2 says, if we try to go about doing that all by ourselves, we will grow weary. That's why we do this. We gather as a church to encourage one another, to enrich each other's lives to the point that we would know that we don't have to sit in the gate all alone. We can do this together. We can judge together. And you're going to see that's actually what Moses, uh, Jethro's wisdom to Moses was. And I believe, again, the church is a beautiful replication of that wisdom and how we should go about sitting in the gate, so to speak. Bringing us back to the text here, Exodus chapter 18, verses 19 through 20. Now listen to me, I will give you counsel. This is Jethro talking to Moses, because now he's marked out that this is too heavy of a burden for Moses to take on. I will give you counsel and the Lord will be with you. You have become the people's representative before God. 
and you will bring disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and laws and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. So that's important. That's what Moses is going to go about doing here. He's going to, I marked out in my notes, teach them ordinances and laws, show them the way that they must walk and the work that they must do. Three things. So that's what Moses is going to go about doing. And matter, again, I, helping us identify with Moses, the church. That's our job. Our job is to teach the world and each other, of course, encourage each other, the ordinances and the laws of God. To teach ourselves and the world the way that we must walk and the work that we must do. Verses 20, uh, 21 through 22. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifty, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. So again, here you see to mark out men, men that are able, obviously they're able to do the work, they fear God, they're men of truth, and they don't like dishonest gain. Those are, if you ever want to know good leadership qualities, we, we have some marked out right for us right there. And uh, prayerfully, you know, here at Blue Point, that's our goal, right? That's our goal to teach the nations the ordinances and laws of God, to show the nations the way that they should walk, the work that they must do in living in the righteous kingdom of God, being effective and fruitful in our use of the knowledge of God. And we do this by way of marking out men that are able, fear God, men and women that are able, fear God, love truth, and don't want dishonest gain, can live with a clear conscience. And the goal is that these people would bear the burden together. That's the church. It's all a beautiful picture of the church. Perfectly, you know that's exactly what my conclusion is going to be this morning, is that Exodus chapter 18 is a highlight of, or a type of what the church ultimately is. Here in verse 23, Jethro says, If you do this thing and God, that God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people will also go to their place in peace. And that's exactly it. So why do we go to church on Sunday? Well, we go to church on Sunday because we have this beautiful pattern in Exodus 18 of what happens after worship is properly established. The people begin to worship God. Now what? Well, now we need to kind of bring them together so that they can bear the burdens of each other. They can mark out leaders among themselves, and they can go about doing the work that they are called to do. It's a beautiful picture of the church. And again, all of this is done to the effect that you might go to your place in peace. And I thought about that as I was reading that. I said, it's funny because when we say that, we live in such an individualist culture. When we say that, everybody begins to think about going home. They say, yeah, I'm going to go to my place in peace. Your place is in this body. Your place is in him. It's not meaning you're going to go to your individual place. It's meaning you're going to find your identity. You're going to go to your place in peace. Again, these people lived in community. They understood that my place is my place in the community. So everything that we do here, we've marked out leaders. We've set up proper ways to worship God. We've gone about trying to mark out the ordinances of God and what we must do. And we do all of that so that we would find our place in peace. We would find that Jesus is our peace, as the book of Ephesians makes note of. So corporately, in the Old Covenant, we know that this was a picture of the Israelites finding their peace in listening to the words of Moses, doing the things that Moses had said. In the church, obviously we would see many, plenty of application for us today, and prayerfully, even individually, we've marked out. You know, am I, 
You might not be a, a leader in the church per se, but you are the leader of your life. Are you an able woman, an able man? Are you trustworthy? Are you, you know, living with that, without dishonest gain? Because again, if this is, this is not a picture of Moses and leaders. This is a picture of the church. We need to be those people. Not just a few of us, all of us. We need to be those leaders. We can judge ourselves. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the point of that text is that we are spiritual. We can judge ourselves. We do not need a law to teach us how to judge ourselves. We have that spirit's influence and conviction in our lives. We have the liberty of conscience, as we see marked out in Romans chapter 14. But I'm sure we all know this. There's power and value in finding others, finding responsible people in our lives that will carry the burdens with us. Some might refer to these as accountability partners. And so we see here in Exodus chapter 18, verses 24 through 27, Moses and Israel listen to this wisdom that comes from Jethro, this godly wisdom that comes from Jethro. Again, a beautiful picture of the church. So in conclusion this morning, I want to say, first off, Exodus 18 is a reason to celebrate. It's a, it marks out God doing something, and not only are God's people saved and delivered from all that you read in that Exodus journey there, and they're still being redeemed as we follow through the text, but we also see that it's affecting the people around them. And that should be our goal in all that we do, is that what God is producing in me, I pray that it's affecting the people around me. Again, that text in John 7, that the living water would flow from our innermost being. Also, another thing that we should celebrate about this text is that it shows the repentance and the confession of a human heart. A priest of Midian, Jethro, he was a priest of Midian. He saw the work of God and he came and he said, I confess, there's no God stronger than him. He is the one true God. Or to quote him properly, I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. He has shown himself to be above them. That's our job in this world as well, to show that our God is the God that's above all other false gods. All the false gods that we make up in our carnal, carnal minds, all the false gods that our society seems to want to uh, create. Our wisdom is that there's no other greater God. There is no other God besides him. Our responsibility as the church, therefore, is to teach all these things that we see in Exodus chapter 18, to be those leaders so that all the people should go to their place in peace. And again, that is not an invite to go home. That is actually an invite to lunch after service to find your place here in peace, in the community. We would look at these things and we'd say, this is exactly why we gather. So in closing, again, we're going to celebrate our Sukkah celebration after church. Um, Just to remind you, this is a seven-day feast. I guess that's a good invitation to eat for seven days. Um, This is the last of the fall festivals. It represents celebrating and sharing our identity in the presence of God. The Jews, they would celebrate Sukkah by uh, commemorating their desert wandering, exactly where we are here in the book of Exodus. And ultimately, they're entering into the promised land. Prayerfully, we're all convinced that our promised land is Jesus. And we can look back to the first century and understand the difficulty of what, you know, how that new covenant was fully consummated. Sukkah is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which is actually one of the greatest celebrations of the Jewish feast because it represents God's abundance, God's blessing, God's overflow. That being said, I do pray that I've continued to admonish us that we need to be affecting the lives around us. I want to remind you of that 
Acts 1-8 model there of the Jerusalem, the Judea, the Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And I want you to ask yourself, who am I challenging in my Judea, my Samaria, my ends of the earth? Who is God convicting me that I need to be influencing their lives like Moses did Jethro? I'd like to pray for us. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege to have your righteousness in our lives. We thank you that your work, Lord, has allowed us to stand this day to find our peace in you, to declare there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ, and that we would just praise you for your presence in our lives. Lord, I thank you for the beautiful testimony that we see here with Moses and Jethro. And I just continue to pray, continue to pray, Lord, that you would allow us that privilege, Lord, to see that in our, our lives, to see the Jethros coming from Midian so that they might declare praises to the one true God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.